we're going to be considering that passage in uh, Romans chapter 4 this morning, so you might find it helpful to have that open in front of you. Do you believe the gospel? Now, there might be some of you here this morning thinking, well, what is the gospel? I'm not really sure whether I believe it or not. Well, hang on, we're going to find out as we look through uh, Romans this morning. Uh, But some of you are thinking, well, of course I do. Of course I believe the gospel. Why why would I be here if uh, I didn't believe the gospel? But do you really believe the gospel? Our passage this morning is based around that word believe. It shows up eight times in our passage in various guises. But what does the word mean? Believing in the tooth fairy, I'd want to say, is not the same as believing in your sports team or believing in your child or your friend. When your partner or friend comes to you and says, I'm going to run a marathon, do you believe in me? They're not expected to say, yes, I believe that you exist. Uh, I believe that you are here in front of me. That's not really what they mean, is it? When we say, I believe in the English cricket team, what we mean is that we trust in them to eventually come through, don't we? We're not saying that we believe that the English cricket team exists, are we? That's not what we mean by believing in something. So the same is is true of the word believe in the Bible. It's the same word as faith. It's the same word as trust. And it's variously translated through the Bible in those three different ways. When the Bible asks, do we believe in God? It isn't really asking, do we believe that he exists? It's asking, do we trust him? And the same is true of the gospel, the good news. When the Bible asks, do we believe it? It's not asking whether we assent to the facts of the gospel, though of course that's a given. It's asking, do you trust it? Is it what you're banking on? Is it your confidence for all circumstances in this life and beyond? See, faith, belief is much more than it first appears. And Paul is writing this letter to a bunch of Christians in Rome, asking them, do you believe the gospel? Now, they're Christians, of course they believe the gospel, but do they really believe the gospel? And are they living it out? So the letter is really like a talk explaining the gospel for the Roman Christians. They say they believe it, but do they really? So Paul sets it out before them like he would if he was giving a talk. Uh, A new talk in a new place. It's like his sort of back pocket uh, evangelistic talk, if you like. It's a talk to explain the gospel. He must have done it a hundred times before. So the letter that we have in front of us in Romans really is Paul's gospel talk. That's what we have. And his point so far, well, it's our first point. Only faith can make you right with God. Only faith can make you right with God. Last time when we stopped at the end of Romans 3, we'd hit the peak of Paul's point for his readers. Only faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross can make you right with God. He spends the first two and a half chapters doing a demolition job on any pretension that we can be good enough for God, that we can be right with God on our own uh, merit. Openly immoral people can't be good enough for God. He shows us that in chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, he goes on to show us that outwardly moral people can't be good enough for God either. 
They might disapprove of bad things, but actually they still do them. And judging other people's bad behaviour, well, that actually only makes them more guilty themselves. They show that they know it's wrong, but they do it anyway. Even being religious doesn't cut it. Knowing the commandments doesn't make you good enough for God. Again, it only makes you more guilty when you break them. Far from helping the situation, rules just by themselves just show us where we failed. As the old saying goes, you don't fatten a pig just by weighing it, do you? The commandments show us where we are, but they don't actually help us get there. So Paul left us with a devastating conclusion in the middle of chapter 3. Romans 3 verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is about as low as we can go, really, isn't it? Humankind has burnt its bridges, cut its ties with God, and now faces his awesome and terrifying judgment. No one is good enough to escape it. We need righteousness for a right standing with God, but none of us have it. None is righteous. No, not one. And then came what's been lovingly called on many occasions Paul's big butt. You groan slightly, but you'll remember it. Paul's big butt. But now, Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We need righteousness and we haven't got it. But instead of leaving us to face his judgment, God provides us with the righteousness that we need. He offers his righteousness to all who believe, to all who have faith in Jesus. Not faith plus something else, faith alone. The gift is there for all who have faith in Jesus, all who believe in Jesus, all who trust in him. So instead of needing to produce our own righteousness, God gives us his. He declares us righteous. That's what that sort of jargony word justify means. It's going to come up lots today. God declares us righteous. He doesn't make us righteous. He declares us righteous. When a judge pronounces his judgment of not guilty in the sight of the law, that person is not guilty and they are acquitted, regardless of whether they've done the crime, because the judge pronounces it. Here, the judge pronounces us not guilty, pronounces us righteous. And he can do it justly because Jesus has already taken the punishment for our crimes. As it puts it in Romans 3, he was the propitiation for our sins. That means he took God's wrath for us. Our sin was counted to him and he was punished and his righteousness was counted to us and we're set free, redeemed. So all we need to do is put our trust in Jesus and his death on the cross. We can't be good enough for God, but the gospel is that because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can still be right with God and spend eternity with him. But, and this is my big but, not Paul's, I imagine that brings up a lot of questions. 
I imagine that if Paul was giving this talk in all those different locations, he'd been interrupted uh, at various points. And the next nine chapters really are a series of questions and and answers that he'd been asked, uh, probably in real life or perhaps some of them just that he imagines these are the questions in people's minds. So what follows is sort of an FAQ, the frequently asked questions. Or if you're not tech savvy, it's just a sort of question and answer session. Paul has just said in chapter 3 that the law and prophets testify to this righteousness that comes from God as a gift. But where? Where does it say that in the Bible, says the first heckler. And what we get to follow is Paul's answer. So the first point, the second point we have is heckler number one, prove it. Show us, Paul, where is it in the Bible? Well, Paul gives us two witnesses. Paul brings forward two witnesses to back up his case. No doubt Paul had had objections at this point. You know, where is it in the Bible? So Paul brings forward two witnesses. Abraham and David. These are two big hitters of the Old Testament. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation... And uh, a big proportion of his hearers and readers would have been Jewish, so this would be a big deal for them. He's called, in verse 1, their forefather according to the flesh. He was their physical ancestor. And elsewhere in scripture, he's called the friend of God. And he was held by some in Paul's day to be the most virtuous man that ever lived. The best man that ever lived. And then we've got King David, the greatest king of the Old Testament. A man... That we're told a man after God's own heart. And when Jesus is born, he's called the son of Abraham and the son of David. These were towers in the Old Testament. These were men that you listened to. These were serious business, especially for the Jews. So Paul brings them forward and says, well, what did they say? Well, what about Abraham? Was he made right with God through works or through faith? Well, says Paul, if he was justified by works, he could boast, couldn't he? Except there's one problem. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What he's saying here really is that no one can boast before God. And Paul assumes that all of his readers are with him on this point. I mean, think about it. You can't go up to Usain Bolt, can you, and boast about how fast you are doesn't make any sense does it you can't approach lewis hamilton and boast about your driving yeah doesn't make any sense you can't approach god and boast about how good you are it doesn't make any sense yet if abraham was made right with god through works then he could have done that if he could have been right with god independent from god they would have sort of been equals he could have gone up to him and said hey look at my works But God does not have equals. So there's no way that even Abraham could come before God and boast. But if that weren't enough, Paul appeals to what God's word says about how Abraham was right with God. He takes us right back to Genesis. Have a look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The scripture itself says that Abraham was justified by faith. The great man of the Old Testament was made righteous, declared righteous, sorry, by faith. 
The man who was known for his good works and virtue was put in the right with God through his belief, through his faith. Now, it's one thing to say a character like Rahab in the Old Testament, a prostitute, a a known liar, was made right with God by faith. You sort of go, yeah, well, she sort of needed to be, didn't she? But Abraham, in Paul's day, he was viewed as almost perfect. Now, in our series in Genesis, we've seen that actually he wasn't. But the Jews of Paul's day thought that he basically was. It's as if he's saying, if even Abraham was justified by faith and needed to be justified by faith, then everyone must be. We all need to be justified. If the best of us needed to be justified by faith, then we all must need to be. And as we said before, he wasn't made righteous, he was counted as righteous. When you look at Abraham's life, his actual sort of righteousness, if you like, humanly speaking, Abraham did some pretty awful things in his life. Though the Jews tend to sort of paper over these bits. He lies about the identity of his wife to the point that he's prepared to let her commit adultery with someone else to save his own skin. He preempts God's promise by getting his wife's maidservant pregnant and having Ishmael. And then he lets his wife mistreat her maidservant so much so that she runs away. Now God was at work in the life of Abraham changing him. But his righteous standing before God came first and it came by faith. If you want the long theological terms there, it means justification comes before sanctification. If you want less jargony, God rescues us before he changes us. And we need to get our heads around this because I think actually sometimes we can get some wrong thinking in this area. We can almost think the opposite in in at least two ways, I think. Firstly, we can think that someone's good enough to not need God's righteousness. What about devout people of other faiths? What about Gandhi? What about old Mrs. Jones down the road who wouldn't harm a fly? Well, what about me? I've never done anything wrong. Not, not really. Interestingly, do you know, that's what Donald Trump says. Um, he says, why, why do I need to repent and ask for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? I work hard. I'm an honourable person. Let's just say that we're not best placed, are we, to make judgments about ourselves in those areas, are we? We're all a bit blind to ourselves. But the truth is that we do, all of us need the righteousness from God that comes by faith. Paul spent three chapters showing that we do. And if Abraham, who talked with God face to face, who was called the friend of God, if he needed this, then certainly Mrs. Jones down the road needs it too. Sin is endemic to humanity. Some of us are better at hiding it, But all of us have the same problem. And that means all of us need the same solution. Righteousness from God by faith. The second way we get this mixed up is that we can begin to believe that our justification depends on our sanctification. Or again, to de-jargonize, we begin to think that our standing before God depends on our behavior, which it doesn't. Now that sounds quite shocking if you think about it. Our standing with God doesn't depend on our behaviour. It starts to throw up all sorts of questions, doesn't it? You know, so can we just carry on sinning? Can we, 
Well, Paul is going to answer those questions in chapter 6. So uh, if you want to read ahead, please feel free to, but we're not going to cover it for a few weeks. But let's just say for now that justification by faith alone is not a license to sin. And it's not, as someone put it, the canonization of laziness. It doesn't just mean we can be lazy in our faith. The gospel that saves you will change you. But that change is not what saves you. If it were, then people like the thief on the cross would be in big trouble, wouldn't they? He had no time to turn his life around, did he? He had no time to do any works. And yet Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Our salvation does not depend on works before we are a Christian and after we are a Christian. It's not our behaviour. But it throws up another question. What, What if it was just that Abraham was so amazingly good that God looked at his amazing faith and rewarded him for that? What if actually his faith It was what earned him favour with God. His faith was a work, if you like. Well, Paul won't have any of that. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul here explains what it means to be justified by faith alone. He says this, if you work, you get wages. If you work for your employer, he owes you money. You're putting your employer in debt to you. If he doesn't pay you, there's something wrong, isn't there? He's not being just. But by giving you your wages, he's not doing you a favour, is he? They have to pay you your wages. It's, a, it's not a gift, it's an obligation. You don't have to say thank you when your employer gives you wages, do you? Because he's got to, it's an obligation. But faith isn't like this, says Paul. He explains this in one of the most shocking verses of the whole New Testament, I think, verse 5. God who justifies the ungodly. What he's saying there is that God doesn't pay wages. He's not in the business of payroll services. He's in the grace business. When he gives, he gives freely, without obligation. God doesn't reward the one with his hands full, coming for his due. God rewards the one with empty hands, begging for his mercy. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the one who does not work. God justifies the one who has faith. And he doesn't take works into account. What this means is that faith is not something that we can present before God and demand that he declare us righteous. It's not a work that we produce even, but a gift we're given by God himself. Faith is needed for our righteous standing before God. God counts our faith as righteousness, but even that faith is a gift from God. So we can't boast in our faith because it's given to us. Let me give you an example. If someone lends you their Porsche, you can't go and go around boasting about the Porsche, can you? Perhaps you could go around boasting you have an amazing friend, but you can't boast about the car, can you? 
And it's the same with the faith. Even the faith God graciously grants to us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So faith is not a work that we produce. Faith is the hand that grabs the life belt that someone else has thrown. Faith is the car that gets you to the award ceremony, not the award itself. It's not something you can point at and boast in. I mean, faith, in one sense, is nothing special. Everyone has faith in something. The value of our faith is not much how much we have of it or how good it is. Its value is in what our faith is in. And if it's saving faith, it's God that gave it to us anyway. So Abraham was justified by faith. And this is a testimony of scripture. And it's Paul's testimony to them. But if that weren't good enough, he calls a second witness, David. Have a look at verses 6 to 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The great King David says exactly the same thing, says Paul. He quotes from Psalm 32, and he says that righteousness is not earned, but counted. And what David describes here is the other side of justification. It's not that righteousness, it's not just that righteousness is given, it's that unrighteousness is taken away. It's not just that the righteousness of Christ is added to our account, so to speak. It's that our unrighteous deeds are removed from our account. Our sin is not counted against us. The debts that we've accrued against God are wiped out. So it's not like we have a debt and the righteousness of Christ sort of cancels it out. I've tried to put it in a diagram. Here we go. So imagine that's that's us, that's our unrighteousness, puts us in debt, if you like. It's not just that Jesus' righteousness comes in and then sort of wipes out our debt so we go back to being uh, neutral. It's not even that we've got this debt and then Jesus' righteousness comes in and sort of cancels it and gives us a bit of righteousness. No, actually, the amazing truth of the gospel is that actually God wipes out our debt and then he counts us with Christ's righteousness as well. He doesn't do a half job. He declares us fully righteous. When he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And this is important, isn't it, for us? Sometimes you can get the impression that when you become a Christian, God sort of wipes the slate clean. And he does. We see that here with David. But when you couple that with what he's saying about Abraham, we see that the truth is far more amazing. He not only wipes the slate clean, but he fills it in again. With the righteousness of Christ. So it's not like you get a clean slate and then it's up to you to fill it up. As if God's sort of saying, well, you're in now, but now you're on your own. Actually, God fills it with the righteousness of Christ. So our right standing before God does not depend on how godly we are, even as Christians. Actually, it depends on that righteousness that God gives us. 
through faith. Remember we said no one is righteous, no not one. And that continues as Christians in ourselves apart from that righteousness that we're given. It was a righteousness that Abraham needed. A righteousness that David, a man after God's own heart, needed. So it's a righteousness that we need. And that's what he's shown us from the whole of the Bible. But then Paul hears another heckler. But this makes it sound like you're saying that, well, anyone who believes is in. What about those that are really beyond the pale? Are you really saying that anyone who has faith is in? Let's have a look at verses 9 to 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now to get your heads around this part of the passage, you need to understand that the Jews really split the world into two categories, Jew and Gentile. There were those who were Jews, and everybody else was a Gentile, was a non-Jew. They also called it the circumcised and the uncircumcised. That was how they sort of split up the world. It's a bit like uh, us Brits. You have the British, or you're a foreigner. That's sort of how it works, isn't it? I remember living in France for a year and being told that I was a foreigner. And I never quite got my head around it. I wanted to say, no, 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 you're the foreigners. <laughs> you know, I didn't quite understand it. But they split the world into those two, uh, two parts. And for Jews, it was very serious. They viewed themselves, the Jews, as in, and they viewed the Gentiles as out. So far out, in fact, that they were beyond the pale, really. Gentiles were able to convert, but to convert meant to become Jewish. They were first baptised to wash off the sort of Gentile filth, if you like, and then they were circumcised. So for them, the circumcised were in, and the uncircumcised were out. But Paul here challenges their view. What he says, really, is it's not about the ceremonies that you've been through or you haven't been through. It's really about who has faith and who doesn't. Don't believe me, says Paul? Well, look at Abraham again. When was he declared righteous? Well, the answer is that God declared him righteous in Genesis 15. When was he circumcised? Well, that was at least 14 years later in Genesis 17. And that means he was declared righteous when he was uncircumcised. So can you be, can you be uncircumcised and seen as righteous... Well, the answer is yes, because even Abraham was. So he's basically using this sort of short timeline of Abraham's life. Declared righteous, Genesis 15, circumcised, Genesis 17. So the two things are separate. And actually what made him righteous, what declared him righteous, was his faith. 
But he makes an even bigger point. He actually says that God did this deliberately. That this timeline is not an accident, but God did this on purpose. The purpose was behind, behind it was that Abraham would not just be father to the circumcised, the Jews, but also to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. That Abraham would not just be the father of the Jewish nation, but of many nations, of people from every tribe, tongue and language. But not just any people, people who follow in the footsteps of his faith. So Abraham is father of all those who have faith, all those who believe. Justification really is by faith alone, and that has always been the case even with Abraham. So what then was the point of circumcision? Well, Paul tells them in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was a sign of the righteousness that he was credited with while he was uncircumcised. It didn't make him righteous. It was just a sign that God had given him to point to that fact. So let me give you an illustration. Putting a badge on that says MI5, yeah, doesn't make you a secret agent. You wouldn't be very secret at all, would you, if you had a badge on? (laughs) But equally, not wearing a badge that says MI5 doesn't mean that you're not a secret agent. So there may be one amongst us this morning, who knows? And in the same way, being circumcised does not make you righteous. But equally, not being circumcised does not make you not righteous, if you like. What matters isn't whether you've got the sign, it's actually what's behind the sign, isn't it? What matters is whether you have the righteousness by faith that the sign circumcision signifies. So circumcision was given to Abraham to assure him of the certainties of God's promise. It was a carbon copy of the covenant in his own flesh. It was a sign pointing to the promises that would be fulfilled through his seed. That's why the sign is in such an intimate place and only given to men. If you want to hear more about this, we did a talk on Genesis 17 only a few months ago, uh, just over the summer, and uh, it's covered in more detail there and you can listen online. But what matters here is not that you have circumcision like Abraham, but actually that you have faith like Abraham. That's what he's saying is really counts. That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. What am I trusting in? What am I banking on? Something that I do or have done to put me right with God? Or am I trusting in what God has done in Christ to put me right with him? And it's not an understatement to say that your eternal destiny hangs on how you answer that question. Am I trusting in something I do to put me right with God or something Christ has done? It's also a question that we need to keep coming back to as Christians. What am I trusting in? If the answer is a ceremony, then we're in trouble. If the answer is my christening or confirmation, then we're in trouble. Even if the answer is my baptism as an adult, we're in trouble. That too, like circumcision, is a sign, not the reality. 
It's, it is meaningful, but only if you have faith that goes behind it to make it meaningful. I've been shocked recently to hear of churches who will baptise people, even as adults, without any genuine profession of faith. It looks good on newsletters, but it's no good for the kingdom, does it? And it can lead to a false assurance, like that of many of the Jews of Paul's day that he was talking to. For them, it was simple, circumcised in, uncircumcised out. But Paul is saying, no, you need to have what's behind the sign. Faith is what counts, not ceremonies or public gestures. Even in a church like ours, who's quite careful about who we baptise, of the 20 people that have been baptised in the last 30 years, I've looked back through the records, at least seven of those are no longer professing faith. That's nearly a third Sorry, that's over a third, in fact. Going through a ceremony doesn't make you right with God. It is faith alone that saves. Not faith plus circumcision, not faith plus baptism, not faith plus works. But that's Paul's point for next week. Faith alone. So do we believe this? That faith alone saves? Sometimes the hardest person to believe it about is not some other group but ourselves. I'll put other groups on the other coffee question if you want to chat about that afterwards. But what about me? Could God really accept me just on the basis of my faith? Is it really enough just to trust Jesus? Surely God demands more, some mystical ceremony or some formal declaration or some big sign of commitment. But that's the wonder of the gospel. It really is that simple. It requires just faith. A faith that God provides. So simple that even a child can put their trust in Jesus. Yet so humbling that even the greatest amongst us must leave behind all our boasting and simply come to him on the same basis as everybody else. The drug dealer is saved on the same basis as the doctor. The prostitute on the same basis as the policeman. And as Paul would have it here, the Jew on the same basis as the Gentile. A salvation for all who believe. So do you believe the gospel? Perhaps you're here this morning and you know you don't. You've heard it this morning and you think, well, I don't agree with that, actually. Well, come and talk to me afterwards. Don't stay silent. Or if you're too nervous, put it on a, a blue slip and put it in the box at the back. Or perhaps you do believe the gospel this morning. But do you really Think about the truths that we've heard this morning. Our standing before God is not based on our performance or on rituals. Our righteousness is from Christ alone. Our salvation is dependent not on an experience, but on faith. We need to preach these truths to ourselves, don't we? On our worst days. When we've messed up and we feel that everything's going wrong, we feel like God could never love us. Counted righteous by faith in Christ. Counted righteous by faith in Christ. We also need to preach these truths to ourselves on the best of our days, don't we? When we're tempted to trust in our own righteousness. Nailed it today. Read my Bible for an hour. Prayed like a machine. Witnessed like Billy Graham. Counted righteous by faith in Christ. Counted righteous by faith in Christ. Do you believe the gospel? Well, let's believe it this week and show it in the lives that we live.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of saving faith. Father, thank you that it's not by works, but by faith alone. And thank you, Father, that means that even if we feel we are the worst of people, Father, we can be saved. Father, thank you that even if we feel that we are the best of people, Father, we can be saved, not on the basis of our works, whether good or bad, but by faith alone. Father, help us to preach that to ourselves as we're tempted to despair or as we're tempted to have pride. Father, help us to humble ourselves before you and accept the gift that you have given us through Jesus' sacrifice. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.